I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and I'd like us to all stand together, please, for the reading of God's Word from the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians. I'm preaching this morning a message entitled, Little Green Apples, or How to Have a Happy Marriage. I want to read a passage of Scripture from Paul, and then I'm going to read, not sing, although I'm tempted to try, I'm going to read the words of a song entitled Little Green Apples. Some of you be very familiar with both of these. Now listen. Fourth chapter of Philippians, beginning with fourth, the fourth verse. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, let this come home to us in our hearts and let it go home with us to our residences. Listen. Finally, brother. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. God has given us the control of our thinking processes. We can choose what we'll think about. And what we think about determines how we walk about and live about. May God add the reading, the blessing of his presence and his illuminating spirit the reading of his inspired word. Now you may be seated. And I want to read you something else. How many of you he remember hearing Roger Miller sing Little Green Apples? Remember that? Oh, wonderful. And I wake up in the morning with my hair down in my eyes, and she says, Hi. That's right. And I stumble to the breakfast table while the kids are going off to school. Goodbye. And she reaches out and takes my hand, squeezes it and says, How are you feeling, hon? And I look across at smiling lips that warm my heart and see my morning sun. And if that's not loving me, then all I've got to say God didn't make little green apples, and it don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. There's no such thing as Dr. Zeus, Disneyland, and Mother Goose is no nursery rhyme. And when myself is feeling low, I think about her face aglow to ease my mind. Sometimes I call her up at home, knowing she's busy. And ask if she could get away and meet me and grab a bite to eat. And she drops what she's doing and hurries down to meet me. And I'm always late. 
but she's waiting patiently and smiles when she sees me first. She sees me because she's made that way. And if that's not loving me, then all I've got to say is God didn't make little green apples, and it don't snow in Minneapolis when the winter comes. There's no such thing as make-believe puppy dogs and autumn leaves and BB gum. Isn't that a great song and a great sentiment? I want to talk to you about being in love at home. You know, the first institution God made was the home. That's number one. Before he made the state, nation, church, any other human institution, God made the home. It's number one. Priority in God's mind. Where did Jesus perform his first miracle? At a wedding party. He began his life in a home, his earthly life, in a home. He began his ministry, his public life, his professional life, in a home at the wedding in Canaan. It is still first. First in God's mind, first in the life of Christ, first in the ministry of Christ. And it should occupy a corresponding spot of priority in our lives. Home is number one item to the Lord. And I believe that marriage is supposed to be the closest experience to heaven that we can have here in this world. It has that potential. Now that potential is not always realized. It is never completely realized by anyone. But the potential is there and the possibility is there if we want it if we are willing. Now, I've got a message this morning that has five points to it, and they all begin with L. Now, I have to kind of stretch one of those points to make it fit under the, that L, but I want to do it for the purposes of helping you remember it. Now, if you have a pencil or a piece of paper, or if you can remember things easily, you don't need to write them down. But if you have a piece of paper or pencil, write them down. Point number one, living. How to have a happy marriage. It has to be, number one, a living experience. Living. Number two, loving. It has to be a loving experience. Number three, it has to be a listening experience. Number four, it has to be a laughing experience. And number five, it has to be a leaning experience. Live, love, listen, laugh, lean. Now, if I preach 10 minutes on each one of these, you're going to miss the ball game and everything else, so I'm not going to do it. But I am going to try to talk about each of them for a few moments. A marriage has to be a living experience. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that simply because you stand here in front of 
a pastor or a priest or a justice of the peace, and they pronounce you husband and wife, you are officially married, but if you think that because that priest or preacher or rabbi or civil official has pronounced those words that something automatic takes place and you are doomed to some sort of inevitable progress in marriage, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. There is nothing automatic about a marriage. There's nothing automatic about a living, growing, maturing experience. It takes attention. It's not automatic. It is not inevitable. It requires attention. It requires the best attention that you can give to it. For marriage is essentially growth. It is two people growing together in a relationship of love sound, surrounded by and saturated with the love of God as the atmosphere in which love can grow most effectively. It is also an art. Marriage is an art, just like living is an art. It is never attainable. Making a difference how good an artist you get to be, there is always implicit in art a striving for a greater expression, a striving for a greater completion, a striving for a greater encompassing of what you feel inside. Interview a Michelangelo. Interview a Leonardo da Vinci. Interview a Robert Wood. Interview any artist and you will find within them, however acclaimed they might be, however successful they might be in their chosen profession, they are never satisfied with their latest creation. There is within them this healthy striving for a greater expression, a healthy striving for a greater identification and externalization of what they feel inside. The same is true of marriage. It, like living, is an art. We never attain it in this life. This is why Paul says, I count not myself to have arrived. Spiritually, I have not arrived. Intellectually, I have not arrived. But I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul saw the Christian life as an art. And it is an art form in the sense that there is an expression externally of what you feel inside, but that external expression never adequately or completely expresses what you feel. So you keep striving and expressing and striving and expressing. It's the same in marriage. Nothing automatic about it. It is an art. And as an art, striving is involved with it. There's also energy involved in it, the giving of energy. Making a difference how good the battery is that they advertise on television, you let that automobile sit in that garage long enough and that battery will de go dead. It will die. Inattention, inactivity will kill that battery and it'll kill your marriage. You start taking it for granted and the power will slowly begin to diminish. In physics and in nature, energy is generated by action, by activity, not inactivity. A windmill, a dynamo, a waterfall, 
The same in life. Energy in a married relationship, the energy of love, the energy of expressing that love is generated by attention and by activity. Not by inattention and inactivity. So if you and I are going to have a happy marriage, it has to be a living experience. We have got to go on growing. Growing as individuals, growing as a couple, growing as a family. Growing in wisdom, growing in stature, growing in favor with God and man. Growing in marriage, growing in love, growing in understanding. Growing in expressions of understanding, growing in expressions of love. Nothing automatic about it, nothing inevitable about it. It takes attention, it takes the proper environment, it takes activity, it takes energy, it takes striving, it takes your best. Number two, loving. Loving. Now, I believe it is extremely important that you and I work at keeping alive, keeping energetic, and keeping active the tender art of romance. The tender art of romance. People start taking each other for granted. And it is then that they become susceptible to some slick-tongued Casanova or some seductive Cleopatra. Once warm embraces begin to degenerate into a friendly little peck now and then. Now, if you want your marriage not only to be preserved, but you want it to be better, then you work at, energetically, with imagination and activity, you work at the physical and sexual expression of your love. And I tell you, you start giving attention to one another and expressing to one another your love, it will put the zest back into your sex life. And that is extremely important now, you understand, of course, God didn't make a, mistake when he made a mistake when he made us sexual human beings. God created sex. God's for it. He didn't make us just from the waist up. He made us with the capacity for sexual enjoyment, and he gave us a command to do it. Know you not that he who created them created them male and female, and he made of the two one flesh, not just one in spirit or one in mind or one in the same house, but one in the same body. God made us so we would fit together emotionally, mentally, and physically. God made us for sexual intercourse and emotional intercourse and mental intercourse. And you ignore any one of those at the peril of your marriage. 
I tell you, there is nothing better or more fun than sex. Now, that may surprise you to hear a preacher say that. There are people... <laughs> There are people who don't know that a pastor has normal desires and normal relationships. They think his wife lays eggs. <laughs> or that if he does have children, because every pastor ought to have some children, that if he does have any, he really didn't enjoy it. He just <laughs> forced himself to do that out of a sense of duty. There is nothing more fun and there is nothing better on the human plane than a happy and exciting and varied sex life when done in the will of God, the love of God, and in the bonds of holy matrimony. Now you ought to applaud there too. Nothing better God has given us. No greater potential for joy and happiness on the human plane when done in the will of God and the love of God and in the bonds of holy matrimony. There is nothing more devastating or more destructive of personality and interpersonal relationships than sexual intercourse without the will of God, without the love of God, and without the bonds of holy matrimony. I had a girl come to see me a number of years ago, a young woman who came in and sat down. She, I could tell she was pretty hostile. She said, uh, she said, I'm a lesbian, and so I guess you think I'm going to hell. I said, no, you're not going to hell because you're a lesbian. But obviously you may think you are or you wouldn't be here talking to me. Or maybe you're already in a form of hell. She said, you know, I came here and I was hoping you'd say that I was going to hell so I could get up and walk out and then blame you. But she said, I am in hell. You're right. And I need help. We talked two or three times, and then on my recommendation, she went to see a counselor more competent in training and in time than I and he helped her, and today, happily married, sexually satisfied, mother of children, living a normal, wonderful life. Now, abnormal sex, whether in the form of lesbianism, homosexuality, extramarital relationships, premarital relationships, 
any expression of this great drive and this great gift of God outside the bounds of holy matrimony and in the manner in which God prescribed will be devastating to us. Nature is against it. As E. Stanley Jones said, nature is against it. It won't work. It won't work. I hope you teachers read your quarterly last week or your uh, teacher's aid and guide here on April the 30th. I want to read you something terrific. Martha read this, and we talked about it last week. Listen to this. Physically speaking, mankind inhabits a thin crust of earth dependent for his sustenance on the 10 or 12 inches of topsoil, breathing from a thin layer of atmosphere. His climate, so delicately balanced by the distance of the earth from the sun and by the composition of the air above him, that a very few degrees variation in the average temperature could annihilate him. But man also lives in a moral, morally, delicately balanced world, even more sensitive than his physical being to his surroundings is his spiritual nature in relation to his environment. Let him go 100% into evil, and he will be so far out of harmony with the universe that it will rise up and annihilate him. It was a force of nature which annihilated wicked man in the story of the flood. And that fact stands as a giant symbol of the truth that a universe created by a righteous God has woven into every atom of its being a harmony toward righteousness and a hostility toward evil. That's good stuff. That's true. You disregard the laws of the universe and you'll have a lot of broken bones. You disregard the moral laws of the universe and you'll have a lot of broken hearts and broken lives. God's great gift of sexuality was a gift not to man individually, but to couples. To a man and a woman, two halves of a total whom God brings together and blesses with his spirit, it is God that weds two people, not I. I merely officiate at a wedding ceremony. I do not perform a wedding God performs the wedding and he brings two people together. He weds them and the gift of sexuality is a gift to that couple. Not a gift for me to exercise at my own desire and my own will. It is a gift given to be expressed in the totality of family. That's why nature's against it if you disregard it. That's why it can destroy us create cauldrons of tears or it can bless us and create incomparable excitement, fun, pleasure without guilt, 
without fear. Nature is fallen. God is fallen. Well, what can you do about it? If your sex life is kind of diminished, what can you do about it? There are two or three keys I want to just mention. First of all, seek to try to give love rather than get it. That will do more for your sagging sexuality than anything else. Be more concerned about giving, expressing, sharing, satisfying the other than yourself. And the zest and vitality and excitement will begin to come back. And you husbands, don't be a clumsy, impatient, crude, clod. Express some thoughtfulness and tenderness which befits genuine masculinity. And you wives, you use those feminine charms that you used to use that drove your man wild. That's right, use them. Let them work for you. Charlie Shedd, in writing those marvelous books, wrote in one of his books to his daughter Karen these words. The female of the species was created with seductive powers that have been perverted by sinners and maligned by moralists. Do you suppose the world hasn't grown up to the truth that God created a woman that way because that was the way she was sometimes going to be needed at the right time and the right place. And marriage is the right time and the right place. Quit taking each other for granted in the way you look, your appearance. Use your imagination for variety and expressions of your love. And listen to each other. Communicate with each other. I know people who've lived together in the same house, sleep together in the same bed. They talk about some of the same subjects, but they never communicate. Martha and I try to go out at least one night a week by ourselves without our children. We've done this for years, and they know that we have a night out. It may be a hamburger, it may be something more elaborate than that, but just the two of us going out to just get in touch with each other again, not just be talking about bills and politics and children and school and church, but each other to concentrate your attention on the other person. Person, not just body or mind or activities, but they're persons. 
Well, that individual to whom you're married is a person who sometimes hurts and sometimes needs and sometimes has feelings that are inexpressible and sometimes embarrassed to express the feelings that we have. It is in times of real communication that what we are can come out and we can really touch one another at a deeper level than even our sexual experiences. In fact, the intensity of our sexual satisfaction is almost directly proportionate to our capacity to communicate with each other at other levels. So listen to each other and laugh with each other. Do you know anybody who's having marital trouble that enjoys being with other, one another and having a good time laughing? Don't take yourself so seriously. There are some Christians that are just a pain in the neck because all they think about is themselves. Take what you do seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Lose yourself in the joys that God has given to you and the love that he has given you an opportunity to express. And learn to laugh. As William James said, cultivate the cheerful attitude. Get off your bottom lip. Quit looking for things to complain about. Quit expressing your distaste for yourself on everybody else. Let God's catharsis of spiritual cleansing cleanse your attitude toward yourself, and it's amazing what he'll do to your relationship. Laugh and lean. Lean on God. Or you'll never make it by yourself in marriage or anything else. Lean on God. You've read those genealogical tables in the Old Testament, those long words you can't pronounce, those boring chapters? You know, when you read the Bible through, do you cheat a little there? You'll read the Bible through, you know, and you get down there and some of those chapters, they're just so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. You kind of jump through those in a hurry. I do. I can't pronounce all those words. Why do you think they're in there? Just to fill up paper? No, paper was too precious. Time was too precious to waste it on those long genealogical tables. You know why they're in there? That's God's way of saying family's important. That's why it's there. Who begat so-and-so is important. Being a father is important. Being a mother is important. Being a son or a daughter is important. Being a part of a family is important. That's why those long jaw-breaking words are in there and those genealogical tables Family is important. It's a primary concern to God. That's why it's there. You can lean on God because he's for you. He's with you. He's there to make your marriage work. Now listen, God has the power to revive. He revives nations. He revives the church. He revives us spiritually. Listen to me, my dear friend, young couple, older couple. God can revive your sagging marriage. And I tell you this, I believe God intended every aspect of marriage including sex, to get better as time goes on. Because God has a continuing capacity to make all things new. And what could be more wonderful than to mature and to grow with your childhood sweetheart? And to let what was once attraction develop into love and ever deeper love and ever deeper and deeper and deeper more encompassing, more satisfying, more meaningful, more joyous. Lean on God. He has the capacity to do that, to make all things new. 
He has the power to revive. He can revive a church. He can revive a nation. He can revive a person. He can revive a marriage. And what will he do when he revives it? Well, he'll give you strength that's not your own. And you'll need it. You'll need it in hours of sorrow or sickness, tension or pressure. You'll need the strength that only the Lord can give you in your married life. He'll give you something else. He'll give you the capacity to forgive. He'll give you the capacity to forgive. You don't get that anywhere else but with the Lord. Keep you from bearing a grudge. So-called forgiving, but not forgetting. He'll give you the capacity to forgive. And in time, forget. You can't do that. And I can't do that. But God in us can. And then he will give you the capacity for unselfishness. You don't get that anywhere else but in the Lord. We are innately selfish. It is only in the Lord that you and I will have the capacity for unselfishness. And my friend, that's not just little green apples. That is real bedrock truth. God's strength and God's forgiveness and God's unselfishness will do more for your marriage than any sermon you've ever heard a preacher preach or any book you've ever read. And you'll be able to go home today and as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in marriage and to concentrate on those things that are good and true and pure and worthy of respect and beautiful. That means to concentrate on each other for that person you live with under the touch of God is the personification of beauty purity truth joy honesty think on them thank God for them and tell them Tell each other how much you love each other and show each other how much you love each other. And God's first priority will be all he desired it to be in your home. Let's stand and bow our heads. And now, dear Lord, we pray that as we sing this hymn of invitation, that your will shall be done in every life. We pray for those who need to trust you as Lord and Savior, or those who need to come into the life and fellowship of this church, or those who need to rededicate their lives to you. And also, Lord, we pray for many who may not come forward down these aisles today but who need before this day is over to express their love, their attraction to, their appreciation for their husband, their wife, that they may rejoice in you 
and in each other. For we know this to be your will. And we pray that we shall experience it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's sing just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. You'll not need the book. The choir will sing it if you don't know the words. But if you need to make a decision of some kind here this morning, whatever it might be, as we sing, you come.